0: How does fear keep you from following Jesus well? Think about Mark, who possibly was the young man who ran away the night Jesus was betrayed and definitely ran home during his missionary trip with Paul and Barnabas, the author of this gospel. Think about Peter, who denied Jesus during his trial, the man whom Mark spoke with uh, to gain the first-hand account of some of the things in this gospel. What fears controlled them in those moments? What fears affect you? How do those fears make an obstacle to following Jesus the right way? On the other hand, how does faith in Jesus enable you to follow him as you ought? What things do you have to know and how does following him reinforce what you know and help you to trust him more? the idea that I think this passage of the entirety of the Gospel of Mark would highlight for us. Certainly it talks about Jesus as the Son of Man. Certainly there's a questions of the audience that it's written for. All of those sorts of background kind of issues. But as we look through the book and try to correlate these themes that we've seen going through the book, I think it is that God is calling us to faith, not fear, as you follow Jesus. And... I hesitated to use that wording because a similar phrase has been used for various political purposes in our society, and I don't want any of that to be a distraction from the point that I'm trying to make, but I think we do see those themes throughout the book. Following Jesus, but a question of whether it is characterized by faith or whether it is characterized by fear. We saw from Mark chapter 1, and we're just going to walk down through the book together, and then I'm going to try to organize and correlate these things together. But let's, let's start in Mark chapter 1. Jesus calls us to faith in himself. The title of the message was to follow Jesus by repenting and believing in the gospel. What was this message that Jesus brought? Verse 15. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What was the gospel? That the Lord was coming, that we needed to turn away from sin. That's what the repent is. Repenting is not merely a change of mind. Um, It is a transformation of life that makes us do a 180 from the way that we were going to the way that we're now going. So, To the extent that I was living selfishly for things that pleased me, for things that I was trusting in about my ability to work out my life in the world, I have now turned away from all of that, stopped doing the things God said not to do, started doing the things God has said to do, but only on the basis of the fact that I've turned away from that and turned to God through Jesus. I was a sinner... Now I'm a saint saved by faith. I was going my own way, trusting in myself, trying to earn my way to God, or not caring about following God at all. Now I am not trying to earn my way to God. I'm resting in what Jesus did in my place, and I'm trying to live for God, but not so I earn my way to heaven, and I am following God instead of following what my desires are. And this is, in some respects, an instantaneous event and a lifelong process from this perspective. There is a point for each of us where we begin to trust in Jesus and turn away from sin. But it's not like that's a one-time thing that we never have to keep coming back to because there are habits and patterns of sin in our life that have to keep being put off. We looked at that from Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 earlier this morning. There are things that are honoring to God, ways of viewing the world and ways of showing love to people around us that we have to constantly be growing in because our natural disposition is to be selfish. So this is a lifelong process that starts at a point in time. But we are to repent and believe in the gospel. Why? because God kept his word about all the things that he said about Jesus, because God sent his messenger to prepare the way, and then Jesus appears and preaches the kingdom of God is at hand. Are we going to submit to and be a part of the kingdom of God? Are we going to repent of our sin and believe in the good news that God has fulfilled his promises, that the one has come to deal with sin, and that we are to follow him? And we see this in the life not only of those in who were turning from their sin to follow Jesus, getting the baptism that John the Baptist had given them for repentance and expectation of what Jesus is going to do. But we see him later in chapter 1 calling out his disciples. And there is this struggle between the attitude of the disciples when Jesus says, hey, come follow me. And they get up, leave what they're doing, and they come and follow him. And some of the people that he delivers by the miracles that he performs... The disciples leave what they're doing and they come follow him. They obey what he said. Some of the people that he heals, he gives them very specific instructions and they don't follow those instructions. He heals the leper at the end of chapter 1 and he says to him, don't say anything to anyone. Go be a witness to the priest. Show them that you're healed so they can see this is by God's hand because leprosy wasn't something that... um, that got healed. You think about all the things in the Old Testament. They were geared toward keeping the person who had leprosy away from the rest of the people of Israel so it didn't spread. But the priests couldn't. There were rare instances Then there were provision in the law for someone who was a leper to be restored to the people, but that just didn't happen on a regular basis. That was something that probably none of them had ever seen in their lifetimes. So if a man shows up and says, I was a leper and now I'm clean, that would have been this great opportunity for God to reveal his power to the religious leaders and see that this was the Messiah who had come from God. But you know what the man did instead? He went and told all his friends. And we'd say, normally, that's what you ought to do. You get saved, tell everybody about Jesus. But we're not talking about getting saved. We're talking about the very specific healing that Jesus did and this man's disobedience. And the title of that message was Follow Jesus, Don't Make Him Popular. We could say it this way. If we're afraid... God's plan will fail unless we help him along we won't obey Saul did this Saul said you know what God said to get rid of all of these sheep and cattle and everything else that we captured in battle but you know what I think God would actually be happier if I left them and gave him a really big sacrifice because God cares a lot about sacrifices remember what Samuel said to Saul God doesn't care about your sacrifices. He cares about your obedience. Sometimes we have this attitude today. If God's plan is going to go forward, he's going to build his church, it's going to happen if we adjust the message a little bit, make it popular. Deemphasize all this bit about sin and God wants you to follow him in a way that's holy and instead just emphasize the part about, hey, here's your fire escape plan. If you don't repent, God will punish you because God is holy and he has to deal with sin. But then we'll come and say to people, God loves you and wants you. I want you to know about the wonderful plan that he has for your life. Now, is it true that God has a wonderful plan for the lives of believers? Yes, but that if you say that to someone, that gives them the perspective that life's going to be easy if you follow Jesus, which is completely the opposite of, normal Christian experience throughout history and for most of people in the world today. We struggle with that because in the United States, we've been kind of insulated from the normal Christian experience in history and across geography. And so it's easy for us to say, yeah, those are the same things. God loves you and wants you to have a happy life. Repent and believe the gospel. They're not the same thing. So we try to adjust the message. We try to de-emphasize things that we think people are going to object to. We try to like smooth out the way as much as possible. God didn't call us to be his PR reps. God called us to take his message and accurately and faithfully repeat it. Then we come to Mark chapter 2. And in Mark chapter 2, there is the... Uh, Question of the paralytic, the man who's paralyzed, and there's this discussion of whether Jesus can forgive sins and heal him. He says, I can do both. The people are amazed. He calls another disciple to come follow after him. Then there's this discussion of whether it's right or wrong to fast between John's disciples and the Pharisees, and then with Jesus' disciples and Jesus himself. And he essentially says, I'm coming to teach you a new thing, and you can't graft it onto your existing ways of looking at the world. It has to replace it. Then there's this question of the Sabbath, and and can you do that? or, um, like, can you eat on the Sabbath? Can you harvest food on the Sabbath? Can I heal this man on the Sabbath? The point that I said from Mark chapter two into chapter three was that we're supposed to follow Jesus instead of arguing with or about him. Because this is what I think it's easy for us to do as Christians, if you've been Christians for a long time. We get into arguments about some really specific point of theology. We have the attitude that I sort of have everything figured out that there is to know about God, and I'm going to be really emphatic about it. And in our shift to what I know and what I have figured out about God away from being, having a humble attitude of continuing to learn from God and doing what he wants me to do, we get into a moment where we start to make disciples of our perspectives on the world instead of disciples of Jesus. We get into a moment where we feel like we know godliness, whether that be daily obedience or regular worship or whatever else. We know it better than Jesus did, so we're the authority on it now. And whenever those things start happening and we start having arguments about what God has said, or even with God, I know you said it this way, but actually I think it should be this, it's almost always a sign that we've exalted our traditions above what Jesus actually taught. And so this is one of our discussion topics that we're going to uh, come to on another time in Sunday school. But if the Bible doesn't say anything about... You have to wear a suit and tie to church. But we say you have to wear a suit and tie to church or you don't love Jesus. We have added to what the Bible has said. And in that moment, we're being like the Pharisees. Now, let me nuance what I said. I did not say we should care about coming to church with a disposition of honoring God. Absolutely, the Bible teaches that. But if we make a really specific rule, then we get in the same moment where the Pharisees said, Hey, you can't harvest grain on Sunday. And the disciples weren't harvesting. They were gleaning the field, picking up a few handfuls of whatever grain it was so they could eat so they wouldn't starve, right? And the Pharisee said, yes, but our rule defines that as working. You violated our rule. God is upset with you. It's really easy for us to add to what God has said and put our tradition about what Jesus has actually taught. Mark chapter 3, the end of the chapter there's this question of who is Jesus' family. Jesus' family is waiting outside. The people are saying, well, the religious leaders are accusing him of saying, you're demon-possessed, and that's how you cast out demons, by Satan's power. And this idea of encountering demons, casting them out, having victory over them, and then telling them not to proclaim who he was, we see that all throughout the Gospel of Mark. The demons are having a more accurate and responsible job of saying who Jesus is than any of his disciples or the religious leaders. The disciples are around him every day, but they're not going around, at least at the beginning, saying, you are the Son of God. That doesn't come till later. The religious leaders knew all of the things that the Old Testament said about the coming of the Messiah, and they're not saying, the Messiah has come, follow him. They're trying to oppose him and eventually to kill him. But the demons are recognizing that he is, in fact, the Son of God and crying out. And Jesus says, be quiet, don't tell anybody. And this is part of this mystery of Jesus' ministry that we see throughout the Gospel of Mark. In the face of all of this, he's rebuking the demons, casting them out, all of these sorts of things. The Pharisees accuse him of having a demon himself. His family comes along, they're like, hey, Jesus, you've had enough public ministry. Why don't you come home and be done with that? is the sense that we get of what's happening in the passage. And Jesus very loudly and emphatically says, who's my family? The ones who do the will of God. If it's God's will for me to cast out demons, but more importantly to preach the gospel, then if you're trying to prevent me from that, you're not my family. Just like he says to Peter in the moment where Peter says, let's not have the crucifixion, he says, get behind me Satan, because you're not on God's side in this moment. So we are to follow Jesus if we claim to be his family. We can claim to follow all we want, but the test of a true disciple, a true member of the family of God, is do I do God's will? Because if I find myself on the opposite side of whatever God's will is in a particular situation, which I think we can derive by studying the scripture and and seeing what God is like and looking at specific principles and examples that he's given us, if I am on the opposite side of what's God's will in a particular situation... I can claim all I want to be part of the family of God, but at least in that moment, I'm sure not acting like it. We come to Mark chapter 4. Jesus gives a lot of parables, the parable of the seeds and the soils and all of those things, and the parable of um, the, uh, the mustard seed cast upon the soil, the crops where the seed grows overnight and the farmer has nothing to do with it. All of these are the parables that Jesus gives to illustrate the nature of the kingdom, both to challenge his disciples to think and to, in some sense, obscure the truth from those who continually refuse to hear it. And I would say it this way. We're supposed to follow Jesus by listening and understanding his word. The reality is that true disciples follow even when they don't at first understand. Their response shows whether they pass the test of truly following Jesus or only following if it's easy or clear. This isn't from Mark's gospel, it's by what John records, but when Jesus starts talking about the you have no part of me unless you share in who I am, you eat my flesh and drink my blood, which he then ties into the Lord's table at the end of the gospel, and people say, this is crazy talk, we want nothing to do with it. Jesus is testing their response to difficult words. If he's a true disciple, you're going to say, Jesus, this makes no sense at all to me, will you explain it to me? If you're a half hearted, uncommitted person who's sort of pretending to be a disciple, you're going to say, you know what? This is a bit much. I'm out of here. And that can happen because of a difficult statement that Jesus has made. That can happen because of a time of persecution that we encounter. That can happen because, as we'll see later in the book, we're not getting all that we want out of following Jesus. The disciples have this constant question of who's going to be important? What riches are we going to have because we followed after Jesus? How is life going to be easy? And Jesus keeps reminding them, life's not going to be easy. You're not going to be rich, but you'll gain treasure in heaven. And you're not going to be first, but you are going to share in the persecution and the suffering that I encounter because that's what I've called you to as my disciples. supposed to follow Jesus by listening listening to and understanding his word. Then we come to this encounter, several uh, moments where we might fear death. The demon-possessed man comes out of the tomb raving and threatening harm to anyone who's near him. And the disciples rightly would have been afraid. Jesus encounters a man whose daughter is at the point of death. There's a woman who has a disease that if it's not resolved, she's going to die pretty soon because it has gone on for 12 years. And she's getting to a point... Where she's having too much blood loss and the doctors are making it worse. Three encounters with death, where there could legitimately be a fear of death. Even the disciples in the ship upon the Sea of Galilee, where it looked like they were going to drown. Four, if we count that one one as well. Are you going to follow Jesus through those moments? The disciples don't have a great response in the boat. You don't care about us, we're going to die yeah I put you here and yes I care about you but you haven't learned yet exactly to trust me here's the demon possessed man he's trending toward death at the hands of the demons they're potentially threatened by death when he comes after them but Jesus is there casts out the demon lots of pigs die and that makes the people in the village upset but God shows his power Jesus shows his power the man who comes to have his daughter healed Jesus says she's not dead, she's sleeping. He takes her by the hand, he raises her up. The woman who's potentially going to die in the near future because of this worsening disease, she just touches the edge of Jesus' cloak, and Jesus heals her by his power. Any one of those should have been sufficient evidence that this isn't just a normal person that we're dealing with. At the end of the the gospel, we're going to come to this conclusion, Jesus is the Son of God. All of these things should have given... The impression that he's the son of God. He calms the storm. He casts out the demon. He heals the woman with the the terrible disease. And he raises a girl from the dead. Nobody can do that. Except God. Against our greatest fear. The fear of death. What can Jesus do? He can calm the sea and raise the dead. And show compassion to heal one who's about to face death apart from healing. he can deliver the man who was isolated and alone from the demon. We come to Mark chapter 6 through 8 and we see this idea that we're to follow Jesus himself despite the cost. Why were the crowds following? Well, they were following because he was intriguing, but they weren't really committed to following after him because they said, hey, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, that lady that had the scandal a while back? Why should we listen to him? He can't be from God. Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. He wonders at their unbelief. He sends the 12 out and they come back. There's the story about John the Baptist and Herod's uh, betrayal and arrest and eventually murder of John the Baptist to please uh, uh, a woman in sort of this drunken vow that he has made. He feels like he has to fulfill it. So he kills John the Baptist even though he liked having him around because he said interesting things. So there was a cost to following Jesus. Rejection from his own kinsmen. John the Baptist experienced death because he followed what God wanted him to do. There is a sense in which the crowd don't understand the cost, and so they're following Jesus just because it seems like they want things. They're amazed that he can feed them, and they want to keep following around after him. It is easy for us to follow like the crowds, to get new miracles. The disciples are focused on superficial things. Jesus is healing the sick and proclaiming the message of the kingdom. The Pharisees are having arguments about, can you eat bread without ceremonial cleansing of your hands? And Jesus rebukes them. And he says, you know, there's nothing from the, from the outside coming in that can defile you. There's things from the inside coming out that can defile you and make you unclean. Deeds of coveting, wickedness, evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, sensuality, deceit, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All that comes out from your heart is expressed in various sinful actions, but at, you can't blame the fact that people around you are sinning on why you're sinning because it's, it's a willing response on your part the woman comes and asks for her daughter to be delivered from the demon and he says you're a Gentile why should I do this for you and she says you know what even though the Jews call us dogs even the dogs get to eat the crumbs off the table Jesus says you know what I'm going to heal your daughter because of your great faith they bring a man who is deaf and unable to speak barely and Jesus heals him there's another crowd who needs to be fed and he feeds them and the Pharisees want another sign and Jesus warns and says don't have the unbelief of the Pharisees don't have the leaven of the Pharisees the disciples are like we forgot to pack lunch Jesus says that's not the point they're all focused on these superficial things Jesus' point is the path to glory is not an easy one there's going to be a cost for it are you willing to pay that cost because it's worth following after me The Son of Man is going to go up to Jerusalem and he's going to be put to death. He's going to be um, beaten and tortured and mocked and rejected and eventually killed. Are you willing to share in that cost? Or are you someone who's going to try to gain the world at the cost of your own soul? To be ashamed of Jesus at the end of Mark 8. Mark 9 and 10, follow Jesus in humble service with childlike faith. There's this idea of humble service. The three disciples, the apostles, are up on the mountain with Jesus, and they see the transfiguration. They say, you know what? Let's stay here. Jesus says, this is not God's plan. And God says, this is my son. Pay attention to him. they come down from the mountain they realize that's not god's plan jesus has already told them what god's plan is it's for the son of man to suffer and to die and you if my, you're my disciples you're going to be right there with me they ask him a question about elijah he says elijah has come and the son of man is still going to suffer and he reminds them again what's going to happen then there's this man that they uh tried to heal his son and were unable to he said you needed to have had prayer And then he reminds them again, I'm going to come and, then I, and, and be killed, and then I'm going to be raised. And then the disciples are having an argument about who's the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus says, you need to follow me like a little child. then The disciples say, hey, that guy's not part of our group, so we try to make him stop following after you. And Jesus says, guys, it's not about them being a part of our group because if they're actually doing this work in my name even if they're not part of this group that you're a part of with me they're not going to be able to easily turn against me and if they're not then you know god's going to take care of it in his time this is not a problem that you need to solve what did i just say to you follow after me like a little child what's the response of a little child if you see someone else doing the same thing that you're doing going down the slide swinging on the swing set let's do it together what's the response of adults This is my slide and you're not doing it the right way and all of these sorts of things. Jesus gives them further teaching. And again, they want to say, well, here's our understanding of Scripture and your understanding can't be right. We want an excuse to sin, but pretend like we're following after you. We see that at the beginning of chapter 10 with the Pharisees and their questions about divorce. Then we see another encounter with little children and Jesus says, if you don't come to me like a child, you won't enter it at all. Then we see the rich young ruler. How does he want to come? He says, I want to come to God with my money and keep my money. Again, Jesus' illustration of the little child coming If you tell a little kid you have to pay 50 bucks to go to the park with grandpa, they'll hand you the 50 bucks. They don't care about the money. They get a little bit older and they learn from adults and then they do care about it. I'm not saying we should be naive or foolish. I'm saying we have these contrasts of the disciples saying, can I be the greatest? And Jesus saying, just come with me with simple faith like a child. Come to me. I like a little child but i want to have all my money and i want to work my way to you and all these sorts of things and then the disciples right after jesus said that say what are we going to get if we follow you and to be fair sometimes kids are that way too if i don't get lunch i don't want to do the activity right but then adults are also that way right but my point is Right after Jesus has just said that it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, the disciples say, how can we be rich if we follow you? They're not willing to follow Jesus in humble service with childlike faith. Do you follow Jesus like a child with humility and service and obedience and excitement about what he's doing? Or do you trust in yourself, your knowledge, your wealth, or whatever? You try to impose your plan on God. You try to get something from God. Or do you just follow him? Then we come to Mark 11 and 12. This question of following Jesus as Lord. Jesus sends the disciples to get the donkey for him to ride in Jerusalem on, and they obey what he said. The crowd is saying, Blessed is the Son of David who comes in the name of the Lord. But unlike Bartimaeus, who recognizes him as the Messiah, it seems, at the end of chapter 10, they're just excited that this guy is potentially going to come and and, you know, if he can feed us, and if he can heal us when we're sick maybe this is the point at which God's going to deliver us and we're not going to be under the Romans anymore and it's going to be wonderful but Jesus comes to say you need to repent of your sin and follow me as your God and they hear I'm going to do lots of stuff for you and make your life better ironically which of those two messages gets preached by a lot of professing Christians today not the one that Jesus was preaching, but the ones the crowds was hearing and wanted to hear. Supposed to follow Jesus as Lord, the starting point is simple obedience to his commands. Go get the donkey. The disciples, go get the donkey. If that's all the more your obedience is, you're not a very good child, employee, follower of God. And I don't say that to say that in any sort of a hateful way, but if if as a child your parents say hey go take out the trash and you're like I took the trash out to the trash can but there's a bunch of trash sitting next to the trash can I'm not going to mess with that because I obeyed what they said to do they said to take it from the kitchen to the side of the house and put it in the garbage can okay check done back to whatever I want to do that's the way that we follow God sometimes instead of saying what does God want of me we say well he said to do this okay Think about the Bible. Okay, I've read the Bible. Check. Move on with today. What was the point of you reading the Bible? The point of you reading the Bible is so you encounter God and you want to follow Him more faithfully, not so you can say, I read my Bible today. The point is not to say, Jesus said, talk with me, and we see Jesus praying. We're like, if I don't pray, God's going to be unhappy with me. So we pray for two minutes. Check. I have prayed today. What was the point of you praying? To encounter God and it will grow in your walk with Him, it's kind of like you say, you know, I got married or had a child and I spent two minutes with that person today, so I am good. I have fulfilled my obligation of this relationship. God wants a lot more from us in following Him as our Lord than just, I've spent two minutes, five minutes, ten minutes doing the one thing you said to do. The starting point is simple obedience to His commands, but the goal is to understand God's heart and what He wants from us. He goes to the temple, and the religious leaders have allowed the system to grow up where you have people cheating people out of money when they came to the temple. They were supposed to come, and if you were traveling like 100 miles, you're not going to bring your sheep with you because it's going to be worn out and not ready for sacrifice by the time you get there. So you'd bring money with you, and then you'd buy one from there at the temple. And there were people who were saying, you know what? This is a great opportunity for us to rip people off. These downcountry folks, they're idiots. We can rip them off. We're the smart city folks. It's more than that, but there's always that attitude, right? The the people in Jerusalem have this attitude in Acts chapter 6 again. They speak Greek. They're not as good as us Hebrew-speaking Jews, even though they're our own people. They have turned a spot that's supposed to be welcoming and helping and pointing people toward God. Jesus says, a house of prayer for all the nations... They've said, how can we rip off our own people who come from far away and the Gentiles who have converted who come from far away, men like the Ethiopian eunuch that we encounter in the book of Acts? How can we get something from them for ourselves? Now, were they technically doing the thing that God said to do? Yes, God said if someone comes from a long distance, they come to the place of worship, uh, it's acceptable instead of them bringing a sacrifice for them to buy an animal from you. What was God's heart heart in it? For you to make it easier for them to worship God with you and for us to all collectively pray to the God who is a God, not just of people who live in Jerusalem, but throughout all of Israel, and not just throughout all of Israel, but throughout all of the known world. The goal is that God would be worshipped by all the nations, and the net result of them saying, well, we did the exact thing that you said, was that their corrupt hearts turned it to let's rip people off, and now instead of it being a place of encouragement and worship of God, it's a place of discouragement and like pushing people away from God because if you come a long way and get ripped off and mocked by the people who are supposed to be welcoming you you're not going to be in a frame of mind to worship God the way that you're supposed to right? we should realize that when we follow God by faith he works mightily but we are not to be rejecting him like the religious leaders or merely being impressed with him like the crowds why do I say rejected by the religious leaders where's your authority from What gave you the right to come in here and mess with what we're doing? Jesus gives them a parable. Hey, here's a parable. Guy has a farm. He hires some people to farm corn on it. He says, it's time for the harvest. You need to pay me your rent. They're like, no, we're not going to do that. He sends another representative. They send that representative back. He sends his son. This is the heir. They say, you know what? If we kill him, this is going to be ours. Jesus is talking to the religious leaders. You're the ones who have killed the prophets. Same point that Stephen makes in the book of Acts in his sermon. That's a very pointed accusation to the religious leaders of saying, God sent you all of these prophets. You killed every last one of them or at least persecuted them. And now when he's finally sent his son, you're going to have the same attitude of rejection and killing him as well. There can be outright rejection like the religious leaders or there can be just merely being impressed like the crowds but not really interested in following Jesus for his own teaching but just following him cuz he's doing stuff that's pretty cool and impressive. We're supposed to follow Jesus as Lord. He's the one who gets to decide what it is that we're supposed to do. The the Pharisee, the scribe who's the closest to the right response, what's the greatest commandment? He he understands it accurately. To love God with all the heart and with all the understanding and all your strength and to love one's neighbor as him is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. If you don't follow God, loving him and loving your neighbor, it doesn't matter how many church services you've been to, how many prayers you've prayed, how many poor people you've helped, whatever good you think you've done, if you don't actually love God with all of who you are and love your neighbor as yourself, none of that matters which is kind of the point that Jesus makes when all these people say, hey, we did all this stuff in your name, and Jesus said, yeah, but you didn't love me. Or the people who say, well, you know, I just believe in Jesus, and James says, yes, you've got to do faith with works to demonstrate it, but they have to have the faith first and the relationship with God. Mark 13, all the things about the coming of the destruction of the temple. Look at this amazing temple! We built it, under Solomon then it got damaged when we went into exile then we rebuilt it under Zerubbabel and Herod improved it even from then look at this amazing building and Jesus basically says you know what you have become so focused on the building and the structures that you have established that were supposed to be focused on me that in a very short time I'm going to knock this whole thing down because it's not about the building Stephen makes this point in his sermon he says God doesn't need a temple You've said, we are so offended that Jesus said, and you're repeating his words, that the temple is going to be destroyed. And Stephen and Jesus both say, yeah, and if that's what it takes to arrest your attention, knock it down right now. But what's the point of all this? The point of all this is, there are days of wrath coming. And like I said earlier today, we could have a discussion about what the timing and exact order of all those events are but the fact that those things are going to happen is not something there should be any debate or discussion about. Is there going to be a time of difficulty and tribulation such as this world has never experienced? The Bible is very clear about that. Is there going to be a return of Jesus to uh, bring his enemies to justice? Paul says that very clearly in Acts 17. There's a day coming when God is going to judge the world by my gospel, by the one whom he's appointed. So the fact of Jesus' return and the accompanying tribulations and judgment and all those sorts of things, no question whatsoever about that, which leads us to what is that supposed to do for us? Get ready. Get ready either for the precursors of persecution that have existed throughout history, directed toward God's church, that will worsen as we get nearer to the end, or get ready to endure the time of tribulation after which what God will deliver you and you will not experience loss of eternal salvation because nothing can take it from you if you belong to God. And whichever side of it you fall on that, either way, you ought to be getting ready. We come to Mark 5, Mark 14. Follow Jesus by faithfully honoring him. The woman pours out the perfume, anoints Jesus with it, And all people would argue about is that was a really expensive waste of money. They didn't care about honoring him. They wanted to honor themselves. And they wanted to gain for themselves. Judas is one of those who's there. He's the disciple in charge of the money who's been skimming off the top for himself. So he thinks if this woman had donated the money to the disciples' expense fund, I could have gotten a cut of it, but she's wasted it on honoring the Jesus that I'm theoretically following. They, the disciples betray him more in their unfaithfulness. All of them, Peter by his denial, but all of them by running away. This is moment when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and he says, watch and pray with me. They fall asleep three times which I would argue is probably why Peter betrays Jesus three times and why Jesus has to restore him three times because he didn't pray with Jesus, so he wasn't ready. But Jesus said, I'm not going to let Satan take away your opportunity for ministry, but you are going to have to go through this point of sinning against me and being restored because of the unfaithfulness and not praying in the garden. We honor Jesus when our hearts drive our outward actions. We're faithful when we follow despite the chaos around us. And yet, if we fail at either of these, God is kind to restore his people and not give up on us, like he did with Peter, like he did with, probably as well, John Mark. Mark 15, follow Jesus, who is the Son of God. After the calming of the sea and the healing of many and the raising of the dead, the disciples ought to have been the one who are proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God. But in the moment of his crucifixion, do you know who spoke those words? It's the Roman centurion who's watching Jesus die. So do you and I really believe that Jesus is the son of God? Because I think it's easy for us to know it in a theoretical academic intellectual way, and it takes the words of a new Christian or an unexpected convert to sort of jostle us out of our complacency and to restore for us the excitement that it that it, that should be ours and the recognition that we should be following him. Because if someone comes and really comes to grips with the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, that should change your life. And if you got saved 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, it's easy for that excitement to fade and for us to just say, well, yeah, Jesus is God. Well, yeah. He did a lot of amazing, wonderful things. Yeah, he's coming back. We ought not be able to talk about those things complacently without it stirring our souls. And then finally, following Jesus despite your fear of others. We see this in Mark 15 and 16. Here's Joseph of Arimathea who goes and asks for Jesus' body, knowing it's probably going to get him kicked out of the Sanhedrin and possibly a lot of other consequences. Here's the women who go uncertain about what they'll find when they get to the tomb, but wanting to honor Jesus in his death, and they find that he's been raised from the dead. And despite their fear... They go out and eventually obey the words of the angel to say Jesus is risen, telling the disciples and everyone else. But in this moment, Mark emphasizes their fear. Why? Because I think this was his own experience. I was afraid... And if he's the one who's in the sheet, who runs away when Jesus is betrayed, I was afraid, and I ran away, even though I was initially following Jesus. And something of fear drove me to go home when I should have stuck it out on that missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. And yet, God worked in his life to make him mature and at a point where even Paul, the one who's like, I can't work with that guy anymore says bring Mark to me he's useful for service I need him everybody else has wandered away but now Mark's the faithful one by God's grace and Peter the one who denies Jesus is restored to ministry and he's at such a point of commitment and trust in God that he's sleeping the night before he's supposed to get killed and the angel wakes him up he thinks he's in a dream and he wakes him up and he's cold in the middle of the night outside the door of the place where everybody's praying for his deliverance and they don't think he's going to be delivered so when he shows up they say it's an angel it's a vision it's a spirit we don't know what's going on God takes two people, one who denies, one who's afraid, and restores them to ministry. And they are the ones who, in some senses, are the co-authors of this gospel. What does that look like for you and I? If we put all these ideas from the book together, we're supposed to be getting to the point of following Jesus as Lord because he is the Son of God, despite our fear, with watchful preparation, in humble service, even when there's a cost, even when we fear death, by the word that we've come to know about him. But so many times, fear keeps us from originally starting to follow after Jesus. If I follow Jesus, what am I going to have to give up? What do I have to stop doing if I decide to follow Jesus? What are what friends am I going to lose if I follow Jesus? How is my life going to be less comfortable if I follow Jesus? And we start following and it's not like those questions go away. They come up again periodically, which is why I think Mark interweaves them throughout his gospel because there are moments where the disciples say, "What what's going to happen? Do you care about us? How is this going to work?" And Jesus keeps showing them that he's God, that he's Lord, that they can trust him. But he also calls them to move beyond their fear. Uh, fear that God can't figure this out on his own, so we have to go be make him popular. Fear that God doesn't know what the truth is, so we've got to argue other people into agreeing with ourselves. Fear that God left something out in the way that he called us to follow him, so we have to come up with all these traditions. Fear that if we lose our family, then um, we're going to have no family. And Jesus says, there will be lots of family. All those who have... who who are following after me and doing God's will fear that what if I've made the the wrong choice when we come to face death when we look at Mark's gospel and we see a Jesus who casts out demons calms the sea heals the sick raises the dead goes through death, is raised himself, we don't have any legitimate basis for fear anymore. Because if he's really who he says he is, and if we really believe that he is who he says he is, what do we have to be afraid of? And why shouldn't we trust him? The only reason that we would give into to fear The only reason that we would not have faith in light of all that he's revealed about himself is if we've said there's something in this world, that that passage in Mark 8, there's something that is in this world that is worth damning my soul to hell instead of experiencing temporary difficulty to gain eternity with God that's the decision that we're making if we say I won't follow Jesus or I'll be too afraid to follow him well we're saying there's something in this life that is worth way more than being a part of God's kingdom and following his Messiah and if we're honest that's a pretty stupid decision buy a new car it rusts out within a few years You get a new job, somebody doesn't like you, you get fired. You pursue a life of pleasure, eventually you get old and it doesn't work anymore for you. Whatever that is, whether that's physical pleasure, whether that's some kind of substance, whether that be whatever, you chase after whatever it is and it doesn't satisfy you anymore because it never could in the first place. You say, well, I'll be well-known. You'll be forgotten in a few generations. Well, I'll amass all this wealth. Who cares if you're not around to enjoy it? There is nothing in this life that is worth giving up your soul and not following Jesus and being on the wrong side of eternity under God's wrath. There is nothing that's worth it in this life. But we absorb the attitude of the world around us and the temptation of Satan to say, take the easy way out, get what you want right now, and it will be worth it. That's what Satan tried with Jesus, and Jesus said, no. I don't want to go through the cross, but not my will, but the will of the Father. Jesus went through the cross, then he was exalted. If you and I are followers of Jesus, why do we think it's going to be any different from us? for us? But we don't have to be afraid. We can have faith in the God who is God and Jesus who is the Son of God, our Lord, and follow after him. Because like the book of Hebrews says, if he went through and didn't sin, if he went through and came out on the other side, he can help you too. It is worth it to follow after Jesus. We should live by faith, not fear, as we follow Jesus who is the Son of Man and the Son of God, who is the fulfillment of all God's promises, who demonstrated it by His miraculous power, and who calls us, like the first disciples that He called, from a fumbling, half-hearted, confused kind of walk after Him to a moment of bold faith in which, like Mark, we're willing to go associate with Paul, who's about to get martyred, like Peter... We're ready to die when Herod says, tomorrow's the day. God wants to take us away from fear to live by faith to follow after Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I think about the song that says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We are so easily Mm, discouraged by seemingly minor obstacles, minor in the face of eternity, big in our eyes. We are so easily distracted by things that seem really compelling. In our eyes, they're amazing and wonderful and things to be excited about. And from the perspective of eternity they'll be gone before we can even measure the first measure of eternity, if that were even possible. You've given us a few short years here, Lord, to walk after you. Help us not to waste it by being distracted by all of the shiny things of this world, by being disobedient and pursuing after the sin that you are freeing us from but instead lord help us to be devoted to you and to follow you as disciples not perfectly because all of the disciples you've shown us in this gospel and throughout the new testament they had struggles they had to keep repenting it was an ongoing process but you kept working in them and they didn't stop following after you in the end, even though there were moments when they doubted and turned aside and ran away and didn't understand and all those sorts of things, you didn't give up on them, and by your grace, they didn't give up on following you. Lord, help us not to give up on following you, of settling for a mediocre life, of possibly even assuming that we know you and not really because we've just been in church but we don't actually love the God that we claim to worship Lord I don't think that's true of anyone here today but I don't I don't see everyone's hearts sometimes it's a struggle even to see what's in my own heart by your grace and I know that if there's been moments when I've been going through the outward motions of saying yeah I follow Jesus yeah I love Jesus and it really wasn't true inside then there's gotta be someone else here that's struggling with that and so Lord I pray that we would not be filled with fear and that fear would drive us to sin and to all of the schemes that Satan wants to lay out for us, but that we would have faith, faith that the words you said are true, faith that the power you showed is real, faith that you're going to bring us to the end, and faith that no matter what happens, it's worth following you. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.